0: You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, October 17th, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. I found out through Google that it was uh, the playwright, George Bernard Shaw, who's quoted, or at least who's given the, the attribution to have said that wisdom is wasted on the old. Uh, I I have read some of Shaw in high school and college. I don't remember it. Don't think that I read playwrights. I had to use Google. But I remembered somebody saying something like this, and it was dead on. He, He, in fact, said youth is actually wasted on the young, and wisdom is wasted on the old because he went on to say all you can do with it is part with it. But when you do, very few will take it, least of all the people closest to you. They want no part of it. It's wasted on the old because no one wants to hear it once you've got it. Now, I'm not going to argue the merits of his logic, but I will be honest to say I wish at least in my younger years I had listened to the wisdom that was afforded to me more than I did. I still have trouble listening to it now, but I think I'm better than I was then. And I thought about this a bit this week as I prepared for our time this morning. I, I had the privilege of having some wise people in my life um, as a young adult. And I remembered one story in particular uh, this week as I was getting ready. When, when I was in high school, really kind of the last half of high school, through college and my early young adulthood, my parents owned a restaurant in Nashville, Tennessee, Um, And in the parking lot of that restaurant, there was an old drive-through photo mat. Now, some of you, even adults here, are probably too young to remember that. Um, There was a time before digital pictures uh, when you had to use film, and you could drive into a parking lot, into this little hut, drop it off, and come back later, have it developed, picked up, and get your pictures, right? Well, one of these was in their parking lot, and it was empty, and my parents bought it and they turned that drive-through photo mat into a drive-through coffee shop. Now, this is in the early 90s, like 91 and on. In Nashville, I know what you think about it now if you watch TV and all that kind of stuff, but back then, there wasn't even a Starbucks in Nashville. Starbucks was still a thing of Washington State and some West Coast. Uh, there was a, you know entertainment center, people traveled, people were familiar, but it didn't exist in Nashville. Uh, and so people came from all over the city to drive through this drive-through to get their coffee, many of which you were familiar with it in other parts of the country. And working there in high school and through college and, and after college, this is where the majority of my celebrity encounters would occur in Nashville. Uh, they happen everywhere. But this is where the majority of mine would happen. And, and I held my composure for all of them as a proud Nashvilleian would, where celebrities are safe. You don't fanboy over all the celebrities around town. Although I did once internally fanboy one time, just once, and it was for Tom Selleck. <laughs> I grew up watching Magnum P.I. There was no one greater than Magnum P.I. And when Magnum P.I. pulled in to get a cup of coffee, I couldn't help but tell them how much I liked him. Uh, Everybody else I acted like they were no big deal. Didn't care at all that you were here. Not Magnum. Uh, Magnum came through and I just couldn't help myself. But others would come through too. Uh, One who was a regular customer was a pastor. Pastor. Uh, who God used to play a, a tremendous role in my life at that point in, in changing my life and opening my eyes to Jesus. And he would come through with people all the time, and he'd come through and drop off books. He'd ask me what I was reading in school. He'd say, would you read this? He'd give me all kinds of things, and we'd talk. And he was an interesting character in and of himself. And, and one day he pulled in, and I slid the window back, and we started to make small talk. And he said, so how have you been? What have you been up to? And I had not seen him in a little bit. I had not been attending some of the things that they were doing. And being a, you know, 20, 21-year-old idiot, I began to rattle off all of the things that I was doing at that point in my life. I mean, my course schedule, my practice schedule, my game schedule, my work schedule. And I looked at him and I was like, you know, I'm just so busy. I haven't been able to, to make it to any of these things. And he looked back at me. And he said, how much money do you think you're going to make in the next couple of hours? It's coffee. I have no idea. 100 bucks. He gave me $120, 120, 120, 120, 150. I think it was 120. And he said, put it in the register and lock the door and get in the car. Now, he was a friend of my family. So there's no stranger danger. I was like 20, 21. Um, And also, not even that, don't leave your job in the middle of the day unless... Your family or someone you love owns the business. Don't don't do that. But I put the money in the register. I locked the door. I got in the car. He drove about five, six minutes just down the street uh, to a church where they had a cemetery on the side of it. And we pulled in. He hadn't said a word the entire time we were driving. We got there. He rolled down the window. Didn't even get out. Rolled down the window. Pulled up to the side of it. And he said, I want you to look out there. And I looked out to the cemetery. And he said, Robert, those are the only people you'll ever meet on this earth that aren't busy right now. And if they had a chance, they'd probably tell you that when they were here, they were busy with all the wrong things. And he rolled up the window and drove me back to the coffee shop. And when he dropped me off, he said, so next time I come through and I ask you what you've been up to and how you're doing, find a better answer than busy. Because busy doesn't necessarily mean much. And it doesn't matter for much. Busy can simply be busy existing, not necessarily busy really living. And I thought about that story this week as I was getting ready because I listened to a, another pastor talking about, he was talking about parenting, and he was telling a story of him, himself, and his oldest son, who was probably 17, I think, 16 or 17 at the time. And he said he was just trying to find a, a connection with him and, and help him before he left the house try to get a bigger picture of this life that he was living. And so he took his son to a cemetery. And he wasn't trying to create some profound dead poet society moment, you know, up on the table yelling yelp and life changes. He was just trying to find a way to get through that 17-year-old shell to realize that life is bigger. And He took him to this cemetery, and he said, I want you to walk around for 10 minutes and just observe. And in 10 minutes, we're going to meet back right here, and I want you just to tell me what you observed. And they did that. And his son came back, and his son said that he looked around, and he realized that some people that were there in the cemetery died at an age younger than he was. And that was significant for him to think about. He said, I saw husbands and wives buried next to each other, I saw that some lived a, a, you know, a particularly long life, and many died in childhood, and some even as infants. And this pastor, his name was John Tyson, he said he sat there with his son, and he said, that's all good. But there was only one thing that I was really hoping that you would see, and it's one thing that's common to every single one of these people that you walked around and looked at their tombstones, Every single one of them, regardless of where they came from and what their story was, had two dates on their tombstone, a day they were born and a day they died. And regardless, between those two dates, every single one of them just had a little dash. And that little dash encompassed the whole of their life. That's it. And he said they sat there and together, they began to talk about what makes a good dash. What what makes for a good life between those two dates? Is it possible to truly live between the day you're born and the day you die? Because it all comes down to that dash. And believe it or not, we, we don't have to go to a cemetery this morning to talk about this. Jesus has something to say about this. So if you've got your Bibles, you're there in John chapter 10... As we begin to zero in on what Jesus has to say this morning, we we need to get properly situated with the story. Because as we begin to encounter Jesus continuing to make very specific claims about who he is and what he's like and how we respond, we're going to have to understand how they play into this whole idea of having everything to do with how we actually live. And so I want you to feel the weight of what he's saying, and to do that, we have to get the bigger picture of the story. So if you've got your Bible open, you might notice that our reading started at John chapter 10. That's the big number, verse 1. Well, if if you've had very little time with the Bible, let me help you here. Those numbers were added hundreds of years after the Bible was actually compiled, after it was put together. They were put there so that you and I could better find particular places in the Bible, particular things we were looking for, memorize things in a particular way. It was for our reference to make it easier. But they were not there in the original writing of these letters and of these accounts. And so sometimes the chapter numbers and the verse numbers get in the way of a good moment, in the way of a good story. then we kind of slice things up in this way and we miss the flow. And the reality is Chapter 10, what we read this morning, what we're going to see in the next few minutes, flows right out of what happened in chapter 9. There's no break between it. And what happened in chapter 9 flows right out of what happened in chapter 8. There was no break between it. It's all part of one larger encounter and narrative. So to get us where we are, let me just remind you of where we were last week in John chapter 8, and how it gets us to where we are in John chapter 10, so that you can feel the weight of what Jesus says when he makes this claim about who he is that has everything to do with our little dash, our life. Back in John chapter 8, Jesus and his disciples were in Jerusalem uh, honoring, celebrating, being a part of one of the three great feasts that God had given his people, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, and it was on the last day, the great day, when they would light these huge candelabras in the temple, these 75-foot-tall candelabras with the 10-gallon drums of oil for each one, and they would light them, remembering God coming to them, being with them, providing with them during the wilderness. It was in that moment that Jesus began to proclaim to all who were around, right there in the temple in front of the lights, I, me, I am the light of the world. I, I'm the uncreated glory of God. I'm what you've been waiting for. I'm what you've been longing for. I am the true light of the world. Follow me. Anyone who follows me won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And as Jesus was proclaiming these things in that huge, charged moment, you might remember that some of the Pharisees who were right there, teachers of the, of the law, religious leaders, they began to argue with Jesus in the middle of his teaching. I mean, he's talking, and they begin to argue with him. And they had this argument about Jesus' claim to be from God, this great claim of Jesus' deity. That he is the one who is from God, who is God, who God has sent now as the long-awaited Messiah. This argument breaks out. Well, that argument carries on for a little while, and it gets very, very heated. Now, I'll give you a couple of highlights here, but I'll have to watch my clock. But just listen to this thing. In John chapter 8, in verses 42 through 47, it gets heated. And Jesus, again, doesn't pull punches, and he doesn't mince words. Jesus looked at those leaders and said, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and, and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? He's going to answer the question for them. It's because you can't bear to hear my word. Well, why can't they bear to hear his word? Verse 44, it's because you're, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. I mean, Jesus is pulling no punches with these guys. They're right there in the moment at the feast going back and forth about this. Jesus goes on and says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. This is what's happening. Well, they don't like that very much. Jesus isn't done, though. He goes on to to actually say that for those who keep my word, who hear it and who keep it, they're never going to see death. And the Pharisees, again, I want to see it one day in heaven. If they don't tear their garments, they do something. They throw their hands up. They they figured it out now. Oh, you've got a demon. Oh, he's demon-possessed. That's what's happening here. And Jesus looks right back at him, the end of John chapter 8, and says, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Yahweh, ego, I me." They start looking for stones right there in the temple courtyard. They're looking for stones because they're going to kill him right there. And it's at that moment Jesus begins to kind of dip out of the scene and begin to make his way out of the temple right there. And that's where John chapter 9 picks up. It's right on the heels of the same story. It's not separate. This is where where the the, the things that help us kind of get in the way sometimes. He gets out, and on his way out, he and his disciples pass by a man who had been born blind since birth, consigned to a life of destitution, of begging. And his disciples ask Jesus, who sinned that this man was born this way? That he was born blind. And in John chapter 9, verse 3, Jesus says, it wasn't his mother, it wasn't his father, It's this way that the works of God would be displayed in him. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. On the heels of what he had just proclaimed and what he was just arguing, he's going to validate the very claim he makes. And Jesus, right then and right there, heals this man who had been born blind. Validating that he is the light of the world. He is the one who makes the blind see, physically and spiritually. Well, everyone was amazed at what Jesus did. And all the people in the community, they they tell this man he's got to go tell the Pharisees. The Pharisees have to see this miracle. And so they go, they take him, they tell him to go to the Pharisees. He goes to the Pharisees, he tells the Pharisees what happened, and they throw a party rejoicing, an immediate worship service breaks out, glory to God, sacrifices are given, right? Well, if you've read the story, you know that's not what happened. They heard what God did, to this man who had been born blind the miracle and this man told them how it happened through this man jesus and the religious leaders the same ones he'd just been arguing with went berserk they were angry at the miracle why well because jesus did it on the sabbath an argument breaks out again And so these religious leaders, rather than celebrating the work of God, having given this blind man sight, they bring him in, and they question him multiple times about what happened. And every single time, he begins to say the same thing over and over again, just a little more clearly about this man, Jesus, and what he knew about him. And finally, this man says in John chapter 9, verse 33, talking about Jesus, if he were not from God, he could do nothing. That's all I know. All I know is that men don't walk around healing blind men. I can tell you that much. If he weren't from God, he couldn't do anything. And the Pharisees, rather than recognizing, rather than in humility going, you know what, you're, you're right, this is a miracle of God's kindness and mercy and grace. Man, who is this man? They cast this formerly blind man out. They excommunicate him. Literally, they say to him, who are you to teach us? And Jesus heard what they did. How they had cast this one out. And he goes and finds him. He goes and finds this one who had been cast out. And they have this amazing moment there in John chapter 9. This man, this blind, formerly blind man in Jesus, had this amazing moment where this man finally sees, not just physically, but spiritually, who Jesus truly is. Truly is the Son of Man. And not just his eyes, but his heart. Is wide open, and Jesus says there in John nine thirty nine, for judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? So they've still been following him, right? We've gone from the temple out here to the man, and now they're following him back here when he's met this man again. Same people. Well, are, are we blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, because you're the one that have all the answers, right? You see, right? Well, now that you claim that you see, your guilt remains. And this is where John 10 begins. Same Pharisees, same people, same disciples, all part of this extended narrative about Jesus and his deity and his character. And John chapter 10 is going to present to us with a very familiar picture of who Jesus is. The most familiar parts we'll get to next week. This week we'll we'll deal with a little more of the more unfamiliar side of what he's actually saying. But in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, with these same people who tried to stone him earlier, who have accused him of, of injustice on the Sabbath, having healed this man who was born blind, Jesus looks at him and he gives him a figure of speech to try to help them. In John 1 through 5, he, he, he's not giving them a parable. It's, it's more of a metaphor to try to explain himself. And so it says, John chapter ten verse one. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Now they would have understand the picture that a sheepfold, just to just to bring us into current days, a sheepfold is basically just an enclosure where you would keep your livestock. In those days, some people may have had like an a-frame roof off the side of their house with a wall and they would have brought their livestock in, and there would have been a gate right there on the side of the house. They would have kept them in. In some villages, they would have had bigger sheepfolds in the middle of the village, and it would hold multiple families' livestock. It would have walls and a roof and a gate, and they would have a gatekeeper who would stay there through the night. He knew the shepherds. It was his job to only let the rightful shepherds in through the appointed access point to get to the sheep. They would bring them in, and they would bring them out. He would protect them from animals that would try to get in. He'd protect them from thieves who would come try to stake them. That's what a gatekeeper would do. So this is a picture that Jesus is giving them. But in verse 2, Jesus says, But he who enters by the door, that's the appointed access, right? He's the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own, he, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they don't know the voice of strangers. Now, this is going to have a lot to do from what you're familiar with, with what Jesus is going to say that we're going to look at next week. But this is an amazing reality. It's still still this way in in many parts of the earth where you find Bedouin communities and and herding traveling communities. Uh, they They would lead their flocks by way of sounds and voices and music. And this week when I was looking this up, I found a story in Time magazine that was from the 1980s about the first intifada in Israel and Palestine, and the Israeli armies rounded up a whole bunch of Palestinian livestock from this one part of the territory. They put it in these huge storage containers, storage bins and shelters, basically, and they said you couldn't have your livestock back until you paid the taxes, right? Right? And so the story goes, this reporter was reporting on it, an elderly woman came to these storage shelters where all the livestock were. Just imagine the hundreds upon hundreds of livestock in there. She came to these storage units, and she asked the soldiers who were guarding them if she could just have her 25 sheep. These were her livelihood, period. Her husband had passed away. She had sons. This is all they had. And the soldiers wouldn't let her have them. She continued to ask, can I just have my 25 sheep? This is all I've got. I can't pay the taxes if I don't have my livelihood. She continues to plead, and and the soldiers basically look at her and like, even if we let you do this, how could we ever know that you weren't taking something that doesn't belong to you? They're not marked. They're not ear tagged. There's nothing to distinguish all of these animals. If you can distinguish them, sure, we could let you have them. Literally, this is what happens. Her son comes the next day with her. He takes a a whistle, not like a referee whistle, but like a a, a tin whistle, a penny whistle, and he begins to play a song. I kid you, no lie, Time Magazine, 25 sheep start popping their heads up in this huge storage unit, 25 sheep, they're playing my song, man, that's our song, (laughs) the other sheep make space, they begin to leave, they follow this boy playing this song back to the house, only 25? Because that's their song. The rest of them, they're not going to, I stuck my song. They still do this today. In this picture that Jesus is giving them in the moment, this shepherd, man, he doesn't just play a song. He doesn't just have a certain whistle. Man, he's giving them all a name. He knows them in an entirely different way. And they know him we get to more of that next week. But verse 6 says, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, they didn't understand what he was saying to them. Right, they got the image. They understood the picture. That was familiar. That was unmistakable. They even knew that it was a metaphor that he was speaking in. But what they were missing was the meaning. And they were missing all of the Old Testament imagery of the shepherd of God's people, of God's people being the sheep of his flock, of the one shepherd that was going to come, all of the messianic expectation that they were so steeped in and familiar with, they were missing it. But even more than that, they were missing that in this moment, Jesus was still calling them out. This was still really in part about them. They were to be the shepherds of God's people, caring for God's people, feeding God's people his word, leading them to life. And instead, they had begun to threaten God's people and burden God's people. Even on the heels of the story, rather than rejoicing with this man who had been completely ostracized from the people, blind and destitute, rather than celebrating the mercy of God's grace on his life and his sight being restored, his relationship being restored, the shepherds of the people cast him out. Rather than receiving him in, they kicked him back out. They missed entirely what Jesus was saying. They couldn't deny the miracle that had occurred, but they were sure, certainly, going to continue to deny the claims that Jesus was making. And so in recognizing their continued blindness, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to take pieces of the metaphor and use pieces to try to explain again who he is. So the rest of these verses in chapter 10 aren't explaining the first five. He's like going to take furniture, pieces of it, and he's going to use those pieces now as another metaphor for who he is. So in verse 7, Jesus again says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. You might think literal gate on the sheepfold, but... One thing that they would be familiar with was this, is that when a shepherd would lead his flock out into the wilderness and out into the fields, maybe when they went from one field to another field in a different region, at night they would put their livestock in temporary sheepfolds, temporary shelters. These were scattered throughout the pastures. All the shepherds in the region had a part in making sure they remained stable and secure. They were just rocks stacked up on three and a half sides with a space on one wall for the livestock to get in. They had no roof. Uh, Shepherds would keep like thorns and brambles and things on top to discourage animals or intruders. And here's what would happen. Because these were just temporary enclosures for the evening on the pasture, there was no gate that would lock it. So the shepherd would lie down in that space where a gate would be, and he would serve as the gate to that sheepfold for his sheep. He would lead them into a place of safety where they could relax, where they could feel safe and secure. He would provide that protection for them with his own life there at the door, protecting them from anything that would seek to get in and disturb them or harm them. And then in the morning, he would lead them out to the pastures where they would feed and graze and find life. Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. And I've got to believe he was making eye contact because he's talking about them. He's talking about the Pharisees. All that came before me just thieves and robbers. And the sheep don't listen to him. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. See, Jesus is just continuing to use a physical reality to depict a spiritual reality to who would listen. The claim he's making here is going to not be lost on some who are listening back then. I am the only one. I am the only one one the only god appointed means of protection and provision for god's people i am the one door the only god appointed access for salvation and life it is a massive claim that jesus is making there is only one door by which you enter and find eternal life. There is only one God-appointed access point by which you can enter and be saved. And it's me, Jesus says. I am the only appointed access to salvation. The only appointed access to deliverance. To find yourself safe. Safe from what? Safe from sins. Penalty? safe from sin's power, and one day safe from sin's presence altogether. I am God's means for salvation. See, the wages of sin are death. This is what Paul is going to teach the church as he would write to the church in Rome, but the sacrificial system has been teaching God's people that all up to this point. The wages of our sin is Death. And Jesus willingly took the punishment, the wrath of God that we deserved, and he died the death that we deserve to die in our place for our sins. And because of him, you and I do not need to ever fear the judgment and the penalty and the wrath of God for our sin coming upon ourselves ever. There is no double jeopardy with God. For those who have entered in by this door, by Jesus, the judgment and the wrath of God for your sin has been placed upon his son. He took it in your place for your sin that you entering this salvation through him might not just find forgiveness, but what the Bible will say, you will find justification. You will be made right with God through him. But he's not just saying he's the only God-appointed access point for being free from sin's penalty. He's the only God-appointed access point to be free from sin's power. Without Jesus, you and I are left in utter slavery to sin. But for all who would enter through this door, The very spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead takes up residence in our hearts and continually works in us, increasingly delivering us from the ever-present right now on this earth power of sin over us meaning you and I, by the work of God's Holy Spirit in us, continuing to conform us in the image and likeness of Jesus, continuing to change the delights and the desires of our hearts, can actually obey God's good word increasingly for our life and joy. We are not under the domineering, enslaving power of sin any longer. You you can be free from that, saved, delivered safely, But he's not just the God-appointed access to freedom from sin's penalty and power. He is the only God-appointed access for eternal life free from sin's presence altogether. Because of Jesus, those who enter this salvation by this God-appointed door can live now with the expectation of a day that will come when we will be with him for all of eternity and the presence, the very presence of sin and temptation will be no more. I, singular, Jesus said, am the door. Singular. If anyone enters by me, that's a tremendous statement. If anyone, no caveats, no restrictions based on your income, your race, your gender, your education level, the number of of hours you do community service. No restriction based on all the things that we build to try to judge and compare ourselves with one another. No restriction. No restriction based on your voting record. No restriction based on your vaccine status. Anyone can get in on this salvation through Jesus. If you're sitting here this morning and you doubt That statement by Jesus, just at some point this week, consider the man who was the lightning rod for this discussion altogether. Born blind, consigned to a life of destitution, a literal outcast from the community. No one paid him a moment's notice. He had nothing to offer. Nothing. Born just like you and I in slavery to sin, He was graciously saved by Jesus. Friends, if that's the case, why in the world would you sit here this morning and count yourself among the number who would believe the lie that somehow God is holding this salvation out from you, and he's keeping it from you? If anyone would enter, all it takes is entering by God's appointed access. All it takes is entering by his door, his son. To enter is the same as we've seen in the other metaphors Jesus has been presenting the last couple of weeks. To enter here is the same, to eat the true bread, to follow the true light. It's to believe upon Jesus with all that you are. It's to believe into Jesus. It's to throw all of your weight Upon him, to let all of your weight of hope and identity and security, all of it down upon him. It's to believe into him that he is who he says he is, that he's faithful to all that he has promised. And if you lean into him and believe into him, you become his and he becomes yours completely. This door. Jesus is the door to salvation. You just have to enter. You just have to believe it. Now, Jesus is very clear here, and we'll talk about it for a minute. I'm watching the clock. But there are thieves and robbers. There are those who look for alternative access points to get in and and not just harass the sheep, but get the sheep for themselves. Now, in the story, Jesus was speaking specifically to the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the false teachers of Israel, but the spirit of the Pharisees and the spirit of the false teachers of Israel, that which was animating much of this, is still very much alive and well today. I mean, multiple times, Jesus would look around at God's people. He would see them, he'd look upon them, and he would weep because he would see them as sheep without shepherds. I mean, some of the most pointed and charged words of Jesus were directed at the religious leaders of the day for how they were treating God's people. And at the risk of, of losing nuance by painting in broad strokes for the sake of time, let me just tell you what was happening. Over a course of centuries, the religious leaders in Jesus' day had, had looked back and tried to wonder, why are we always finding ourselves in exile or in oppression by other people? And they'd go back to the stories of the people of Israel and they would see that it was because of the idolatry, it was because of the sin, it was because of the distance in themselves from who God is for them, that God gave them over to their sin and gave them over to oppression and gave them over to exile at different times. And, and so the religious leaders began to think, if we could just figure out how to live more holy and more pure lives, we won't find ourselves constantly being given over to exile and oppression. And they began to think to themselves, for lack of a better term, what if every house in Israel was like a temple and every Israelite a priest? And they looked to not only the law that God gave his people, they looked to the law that God gave his set-apart ones, his priests, his holy people that he had set apart for himself as shepherds. They looked to that and they began to think, well, if we could get everybody to follow the things that God not only gave us for life and joy, but what he's commanded for these to do, Man, then we might not find ourselves in exile. Again, I'm painting with very broad strokes. That is the course they began to chart over a number of centuries. And over a number of centuries, law after law began to be stacked upon another until a burden was stacked upon the people of God that God had never intended for them to have to carry. But those who had the means to meet the rules And the time to comply with them, well, it worked out really well for them, didn't it? That tended to be the religious leaders in the religious class. They tended to have the access to what was needed to comply with the rules that they were adding. So they felt very good about themselves. They enjoyed their self-righteousness and they enjoyed the opportunities that were afforded to them because of their ongoing compliance to all these rules that were being added. But everybody who didn't have the wealth or the opportunity to follow all these rules or the time to comply with them, well, they just looked at them as people who didn't care about God's holiness. And Jesus showed up on the scene. And take some time this week, we don't have time this morning, to go read Matthew chapter 23. 23. Jesus looked at these religious leaders and called them a brood of vipers, tying up burdens on God's people, laying them on their shoulders, doing all these things to be seen by others, loving the praise of people. But woe to you, hypocrites. You're shutting the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Woe to you, Jesus said to these same people. You travel across the sea just to make one convert. And when you do, you make them twice the son of hell as yourself. Jesus had no patience for these thieving shepherds. You're thieves, killing the work of God amongst his people. Friends, this is always what religion without relationship and dependence upon Jesus does. And as one writer said, the religious impulse is easier to rebrand than extinguish. This same spirit is still alive and well. And wherever it takes root, it platforms people who can perform and judges those who can't. And this religious pharisaical spirit is devastating to the soul. People here, they come into a place like this absolutely weary and burdened and exhausted from life, and they've heard of something of God's mercy, something of His grace, something of His goodness, and they get into a place like this, and if what they encounter is this same pharisaical spirit always holding out to them all these different things that they have to do just right in just such and such way in order to have any confidence that God may love them, it's devastating. It's devastating. It's devastating. I mean, if that is in any part your story, and you're here this morning, I'm glad that you were here. Don't give up on the church just yet. However angry you may feel at that religious impulse, Jesus was angrier still, and he had no patience for it at all. Friends, beware of this empty religion that tries to avoid the door and And says, you just have to do more and more and more for God to accept you and love you. That is the voice of a thief and a robber. And he only wants to kill and steal and destroy the joy and the life that God has for you and his son. But he's not alone. He comes with a partner. The false teachers, they were in Jesus' crosshairs too. And some of the false teachers of Israel sounded a lot like the Pharisees. And some of them sounded just like their opposites. Some of these false teachers would climb over the walls and they would begin to whisper to the sheep, did God really say? The Pharisees, they would say, thus saith the Lord. Duh, 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 duh. These come in and say, did God really say that? I mean, this is the animating voice of the progressive deconstructionist religious movement in America today that is eating people alive. It's not the voice of sincere doubt. Man, who is Jesus. I've heard something of him. Who is he that I might come to see him? This is the voice that is intent on instilling doubt. This voice is taking thousands of years of godly beauty and ethics and theology and literally trying to toss it out a window with the whisper of is that what Jesus meant? Really? Friends, this is the voice of a thief. This is the voice of a robber. It is the voice of a false shepherd trying to climb over the walls of God's ordained boundary for your life and whisper to you, You got to get out of here. Freedom isn't in here, it's out there somewhere. Friends, that is the voice of a thief, and you've got to shut that thing down. It is just whispering about the illusion of a life apart from God. That voice. No matter how good it makes you feel about yourself, it doesn't care about you at all. Doesn't care about your soul, doesn't care about your joy, doesn't care about your future, doesn't care about your security. It only comes to kill, steal, and destroy. I am the door, Jesus said. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief. He comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. James Boyce was a pastor in Philadelphia in the last century. and He said this life that Jesus is talking about, it's not a sickly life of piety where everything is beautiful and precious and wonderful. The abundant life, as the Bible speaks of it, is above all a contented life in which contentment comes from the confidence that God is equal to every emergency and does indeed supply all of your genuine needs according to his riches in glory by his son Jesus. This life is the life of a sheep who finds himself in the hands of a good shepherd. There will be dangers. There will be storms at times, even drought and famine. Still, in the hands of a good shepherd, the sheep is content and life is bountiful. Anyone who enters through that door will find rest and provision and safety and security for your soul in Jesus. What does it look like? Take some time this week to go sit with Psalm 23. Next week, we'll look a little bit more of what life with this shepherd looks like. But this morning, Jesus says, I am the door. Anyone who enters by me will be saved will find rest for your soul, will be provided for, and will have safety. I am the only door to such salvation, Jesus says. I am the only door to a place of refuge and safety. I am the only door to abundant life. He is the only door that makes all the difference to that dash between your two dates. That takes that dash and moves it from a dash of existence to a dash of really living. So this morning, as we get ready to respond, I just want you to do something for me. I want you to just look around really quick. I want you to notice that this space that we're all gathered in this morning, it's called a sanctuary. A sanctuary just literally means a place of refuge and, and safety. And so historically, centuries ago, it's not so much now, and for good reason, but centuries ago men and women who had broken the law, who were criminals, they could flee to the sanctuary. And they could find a temporary place of refuge and safety if they came inside the walls. That was one of the functions that a sanctuary played in history. Well, if you'll let me have a moment for a metaphor before we finish this morning. I want you to consider this sanctuary a bit like that sheepfold. Spiritually speaking, every single one of us in here has broken God's law and is therefore guilty. Apart from what you might come in here believing, this place is not a place where spiritually innocent people come together every week. That's a lie. This is a place where spiritually guilty people gather that they might hear, some for the first time and some to be reminded again, that because of Jesus, we're safe from the judgment our sins deserve. And I doubt this morning when you came in, they probably opened, but I doubt you've ever come in here and paid any attention to the doors that got you into this sanctuary, this place of refuge and safety. They're painted red. I don't like the color, but it's a Christian tradition. The doors to the sanctuary, the place of refuge and safety, have historically been painted red, Because it's through the red blood of Christ, the true door to sanctuary, refuge, and safety that we enter. Outside of those doors all week long, the voices of thieves and robbers are constantly telling us that we don't measure up. We're not good enough. We're not capable. The lies of comparison and innuendo just assault us all week. And then we come here. And it's through the physical doors that we come into the place called the sanctuary of refuge and safety. And as we come through the physical doors, we're reminded of the true spiritual door. The one true door by whom we enter and truly find sanctuary for our souls. Friends, this morning... You're sitting here, and I don't know if you believed it or not, but the church should be the safest place you could ever imagine. A place where, to mix metaphors, the the needle gets stuck in the groove of God's promised rest for the weary and burdened, his inexhaustible grace for the exhausted, where we sing of God's faithfulness, that nothing we can do or fail to do will ever tempt God to leave us or forsake us, a place where His voice is the loudest and where His voice reminds us that because of His Son, we belong. This morning, I'm going to end my portion of our time together in a way that one of my spiritual heroes has begun his service with his people for over 15 years that he took from Jim Boyce, who I just quoted a minute ago, who's done it for 50 years. And I just want you to listen this morning as we prepare to respond. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who are weak and fail and desire strength to all who sin and need a Savior. This church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, the true door, the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, the justifier of those who have no excuses left. And I'll add this, the only true door to salvation and abundant life for anyone who would enter. Who is like him? Why on earth would you not enter in this morning? Let me pray for us this morning as we prepare to respond. Jesus, overwhelm us with your mercy. Your grace that took our sin that we committed, that took our judgment that we deserved in order to defeat our enemy that in you we might have life and have it abundantly this morning we just ask that you would do what only you can do that you would open up our ears to your voice you would open up our eyes to see the thieves and the robbers that would seek to destroy the joy of our life in you may your voice be the loudest in our hearts this morning. We ask that you would do this in your good name for your joy and our glory. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.